Well, hello, everybody. This is Bob Bro. Welcome to the Best Old Time Radio Podcast. This week for our archive show, we're going back to June the 20th in 2016. And I hope you enjoy the show. It's half past eight exactly, Mr. Dillon. I better get it out of the safe now. shorts you have on there, Chester, let me tell you. Yeah, well, I guess if I had legs that look like that, I'd, I'd wear shorts too. <laughs> Hi, everybody. This is Bob Bro. Is it hot where you are? Oh, man. It's like 103 here in St. Louis today. Very, very warm. But we're glad that you could come along. Come on inside where it's air-conditioned, and we've got a great lineup this week here on Boomer Boulevard. This is Boomer Boulevard. This is the show where we play old-time radio shows. We actually remember from when we were kids because we're baby boomers, but everybody's welcome, so come on along. We're going to have three great shows tonight. We're going to play an episode of Philip Marlowe, Jack Benny, and Gunsmoke, and we have some good music to play along to and even a bit from a comedy album that you just may remember from back in the 60s so grab yourself something cool to drink get in front of the air conditioner sit down relax and we'll be right back in just a minute
Okay, everybody, it is time for a little radio noir here. We're going to go back to 1951 and walk along the streets of Los Angeles, the underbelly of Los Angeles, with an episode of Philip Marlowe. The only problem with that is, is Philip Marlowe very seldom spent time in the underbelly of Los Angeles. He often was up in Bel Air or Beverly Hills, and that is the case tonight. This story was written by Catherine Height, who, in my opinion, was just one of the better radio script writers back in the late 40s, early 50s. She did a lot of work for uh, Norm MacDonald, and this, this is just, a, I think, a really good script. And this one was originally broadcast on CBS on the 8th of September in 1951. Uh, listen for Gloria Blondell in this one. Remember Gloria Blondell? used to see her in a lot of things back in the early 50s. I know a lot of times she sort of played the gun mall type of thing in some of the early Bee movies, but I remember her best as Honey Bee, Gillis's wife on the TV version of Life O'Reilly with William Bendix. Gloria Blondell. Okay, here we go from 1951. This is Philip Marlowe. The medium was rare. Get this and get it straight. Crime is a sucker's road, and those who travel it wind up in the gut of the prison of the grave. There's no other end, but they never learn. From the pen of Raymond Chandler, outstanding author of crime fiction, comes his most famous character in The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. Now, with Gerald Moore, starred as Philip Marlowe, we bring you tonight's transcribed story, The Medium Was Rare. Let me out of here. I've got to get away. This is the time. The time when all I can think of is trout streams, trails through tall mountains, where every man is Hopalong Cassidy. I was sitting in my favorite restaurant telling Mary my favorite hash slinger all about it. Oh, it all sounds so wonderful, Phil. Yeah, but that's not the half of it. There are waterfalls so high, it seems the cascade comes from heaven itself. Going alone, Phil? You bet your sweet life I'm going alone. In the words of the poet, I'm going to commune with nature. I'm the most natural thing you ever saw. Darling, you're beautiful. Your charms are many, but you want me to be honest? Yeah. You don't compare to a trout. Why, you worm. <laughs> don't get mad, baby. It's the season. Mm, season her out. I don't like being compared to a fish. Not a fish, baby. The queen of them all. A mountain trout. Did you ever hear of the Feather River country, Mary? If it's out of Los Angeles County, I've never been there. It's in northern California. Northern fringe of the mother load. Here's your coffee. Mother who? Hey, hey, you know something? If I started right now, I could make it before morning. A quick cup of coffee, huh, doll? I'll drop everything. Well... If it ain't the clean-living type. Hi, Marlow. Hiya, Cookie. I thought they had you stashed away. Not no more. I got parole last week. No kidding. Yeah, no kidding. It was a bum rap. It sure was, if you're out this soon. Anything else? Yeah. When do you get off? A lot later than you do, because you're getting off now. Touche, girl. Yeah? 
What kind of a crack is that? That's French for I'm on your team. Ah. <laughs> dames. You try to say something nice to him, and uh, where does it get you? Yeah, well, I got to go, Cookie. I'm sorry to yeah, see wait, you. Wait, wait, wait. I'll go with you. Thanks, uh, Mary. Yeah, you bet, Bill. Give my regards to the fish. I leave you a nickel, doll. Better keep it. The other buffalo will miss you. You got to face it, Cookie. She's crazy about you. You think so? No. Well, my car's in the lot here. I'm in a hurry, yeah, so... Yeah, well, if... mine's in the lot, too. Uh, uh, listen, Marlowe. I was just wondering. You get around. Uh, you got any idea where Chisano is? Chisano? Yeah. Don't you know any decent people? Hey, Chezano's my pal. He's as decent as I am. You made the point, Cookie. Seems to me there was talk he had something to do with you taking that rap in the first place, huh? Listen, you don't think I'm trying to find him to knock him off or anything like that? Could be, or about that bright. But it doesn't really matter. I don't know where he is. I don't care. I don't want to know where you are, either. Well, that suits me good. Only good. I don't know what you're so kissed off about. I, I done nothing to you. Neither is Chezano. You make my taxes higher. Yeah, how... Never mind. Oh, oh you kill me, Marlowe. You talk about taxes. Yeah. How'd you like to pay taxes on this job? This your heap? Yeah. One of them foreign things. Right hand drive. Baby blue yet. It matches my eyes. What'd you do at San Quentin? Learn a trade? Sure. And a good one. <laughs> you decent people go right on paying taxes, Marlowe. Us third-rate punks will get along. I watched Cookie's baby blue convertible cut out into the traffic. Got in my own car and drove away in the opposite direction. Yeah, Cookie cinched it. I was going to knock off for a while, head for the Feather River country. Well, by the time I reached my apartment, I could almost smell the pine trees. And while I tossed a few things into a bag, I saw myself every inch a modern Isaac Walton. Oh. oh. You're Philip Marlowe? That's right. Oh, I'm so glad you're here. I've been calling you. Oh, I- I'm Lillian Collins. Are you? Well, uh... I told Pat not to wait. Who's Pat? The taxi driver. Oh, him. Uh, may I come in? Well, yeah, I guess so. Oh, thank you. Mm-hmm. Oh, you're you're packing, or are you unpacking? No, I'm packing. I'm going to the Feather oh, River but you Country. you can't. I... What? You can't be going anywhere. I... Well, I need your help, Mr. Marlowe. I really do, desperately. Yeah, well, I just thought I'd take a few days of off. Can't I'll, it I'll pay you whatever's customary. I just don't know where to turn. And somehow we've got to locate them quickly. Leonard should be home within a oh, week. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Sit down. Mrs. Uh, uh, Collins, is it? Uh, yes. Lillian. Oh. Leonard's my husband. He's back east on business. Well, just what do we have to locate quickly? By jewelry. It was stolen last night. Oh, well, stolen jewelry's out of my line, Mrs. Collins. That's a police job. Oh, no. Oh, that is it. It, it can't be. Why? I, I thought about the police right away, of course, but I, I can't call them in. Leonard would hear about it. I know it. It would be in the papers and... Would you understand, don't you? No, I don't understand. I just couldn't, that's all. Mrs. Collins, right now I like fishing poles better than I do people. Oh, but you can't go. I I mean, you can, of course, but I do need your help so much. (laughs) Why can't I resist names? All right, but you have to level with me. What jewelry, when did it happen, who knew you had it, everything? Well, it was a necklace, diamonds, and a diamond bracelet. 
I had them in my jewel box last night. I'd only just taken them from our safe deposit box in the afternoon. Who knew you took them out? Well, no one. No one knew. Mm-hmm. Well, how did it happen, the robbery, I mean? Well, I, I was in my bedroom. That's where the jewel box was. Yeah. I was dressing for dinner. The doorbell rang. I had to answer it. Letty's on vacation now that Mr. Collins is in the East. It was Sylvia, a friend of mine. We were to have dinner together. I fixed a drink for us, then went back to my bedroom for my wrap. That's when I noticed the jewelry was missing. You hadn't heard anything, anyone in the house? No. Mm. Of course, the radio was on. Music, you know. Mm-hmm. How would anyone get into the bedroom? Well, the French doors open onto a little terrace right by the bedroom. I rather presumed whoever it was came in that way. Well, how much would you say this jewelry is worth? $10,000. Mm. Oh, that's what it's insured for. Anything else taken? No, not a thing. Do you wear this necklace and bracelet often? Oh, no, not really. When Leonard gave them to me, he said they were for state occasions. Last night was a state occasion. Oh, my goodness, no. Oh, that is, I... If you didn't intend to wear them last night, why did you take them out of the safe deposit box? I... I suppose you'll have to know. I needed the money, Mr. Marlowe. I have a debt Leonard knows nothing about. If I wrote a check for $10,000, he'd ask questions. I don't blame him. Well... There's just no need worrying him with it, that's all. He doesn't know you gamble, huh? I didn't say... (laughs) You didn't have to. Have you ever pawned anything before, Mrs. Collins? No. No, I haven't. Well, I got news for you. You probably couldn't get ten grand for them. Oh, but if they're insured... Doesn't matter. Unless you made a deal to have them stolen so you could get the insurance money. Oh, really, Mr. Marlowe? Really, Mrs. Collins? (laughs) Okay. Let's drive to your place and look around. Yeah, these doors have been jimmied, all right. Didn't it bother you to stay here last night after it happened? Oh, I didn't. I stayed with Sylvia in Westwood. Told her about the robbery, huh? No, no, I didn't. I started to, but then I... I was afraid I'd have to tell her too much. Mm. You stay there last night and then come over to my apartment by cab this morning? Well, I came here first, then to your apartment. I wanted to be sure nothing else was missing. And then I decided to get in touch with you and had Pat drive me over. That's the taxi driver. <laughs> He's practically my chauffeur. His stand is right out in front of our building here. I'm one of those native-born New Yorkers who never learned to drive. Mrs. Collins. Hmm? Are you sure that you're telling me everything you know about this? Oh, believe me, I am, Mr. Marlowe. Why, it would be so stupid of me not to. Yes, it would. I've got to have that jewelry back before Leonard comes. He, he'll just never understand the gambling and all. I, well, he's gone so much, and we have no children. There, there just wasn't anything else to do. Can you understand that, Mr. Marlowe? No, but I'll try, Mrs. Collins. <laughs> was something tragic about her. A woman of means and advantage who was husbandless part of the time and childless all of the time. I suppose that isn't an easy life, but surely there must be other ways to fill the emptiness, huh? Well, Lillian packed a small bag and asked me to drive her to Sylvia's. As we walked toward my car, a grinning taxi driver leaned out of his cab. Take you somewhere, Mrs. Collins? Oh, not this time, thanks, Pat. 
I'm freeloading. <laughs> okay, but don't make it a habit. I got to make a living, you know. I know. See you later, Pat. He's awfully nice, Mr. Mark. Yeah, he seems to be. Tell me about your friend Sylvia. Oh, well, there isn't much to tell. She's a nice person, a widow. Oh, she just lives a block or so from here. Turn on Wilshire to your left. Okay. Tell me, does Sylvia have money? Well, I guess so. She seems to, anyway. Has a lovely apartment, a nice car, all the symbols, anyway. Why? Oh, I just wonder. Oh, uh, by the way, if you don't want her to know you've hired me, maybe you better tell her I'm a business friend of your husband, huh? Just drop by as you're leaving the house, something like that. Oh, oh, yes, that, that's a good idea. Yeah. Uh, it's in this block, the big green apartment building on the right. Okay. Hmm. That's funny. Is it? Yeah. Oh, here's a parking place. Wonder what Cookie's doing around here. <clears throat> a friend of yours? No. No, not possibly. That car parked there, foreign job, baby blue. It's Cookie's all right. Sylvia's apartment is the first one on this side. You, you really don't have to come in, Mr. Mark. Name's Murphy, remember? Old friend of your husband's. Yes, yes, that's right. I'll come in to carry your bag and to meet Sylvia. <laughs> Very partial to wealthy widows. Really, Mr. Marlowe, do you think you will find my jewelry? Well, I've got one idea so far, Mrs. Collins. If that doesn't work, well, you leave it up to me, huh? Yes, yes, of course. Oh, oh here we are. Hello, darling. I'm so glad you're back. Oh. Hello. Hello. Uh, Sylvia, this is Mr... Murphy. Uh, oh, yes, of course, Mr. Murphy. Sylvia Jennings. How do you do, Mr. How are you? Well, come in, come in, both of you. I was just getting ready for a swim. Oh, sounds wonderful. Maybe I could scare up a pair of trunks for you, Mr. Murphy. Oh, thanks. No, I, I've got to run along. I just stopped by Mrs. Collins looking for her husband. Uh, Mr. Murphy's from out of town, known Leonard for years. I was all packed, ready to come over here. So I brought her. Well, all right. You know, you two don't have to explain anything to me. As a matter of fact, I can go down to the pool alone, and you two can stay here and uh, talk about old times. Why, Sylvia. Oh, relax, Bill. And forgive me, Mr. Murphy. I've told stories like that myself so many times, I know them by heart. I'll bet you do at that. You know I do. <laughs> what? Now, I just won't have you thinking that, Sylvia. <laughs> oh, now, don't be silly, darling. It's not important. Oh, but it is. Hey, wait a minute. Just... Hold it, hold it. Let's you both go down to the pool and talk it all over. I really have business to tend to. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm really sorry. Yeah, we'll just keep it that way. Uh, but will, will we be hearing from you about anything or anything uh, you know? Oh, sure, sure. Yeah, sure you will. About anything. About that Sylvia. Well, the case was beginning to have its compensations. But I didn't figure Lillian Collins at all. Sometimes I thought she lied in her teeth, and sometimes I knew that she was just a bewildered dame who'd had her jewels lifted. I passed Cookie's car again as I left, and still no sign of him. I had told Lillian I had one idea. He was still at the taxi stand in front of her apartment. You really Philip Marlowe? Yeah, I really am. Need proof? No, no, that's okay. Mrs. Collins wouldn't have been with you if you weren't the right guy. You say I can help? Yeah, maybe so. Now, look, you drive her almost everywhere she goes. Now, how about telling me just where she goes, huh? Regulation places, Saxes, Magnons, places for lunch, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. 
This morning I took her over to a Hollywood address. Oh, that was me. Oh, <laughs> well, oh, hey, there is one place she goes oh. a couple of times a week for the last three or four weeks. A place on top of one of the hills up off of Coldwater Canyon. Friend of her? Well, maybe. She usually asks me to wait, though, between 15 minutes and a half hour. That's all the longer she stays. When was the last time you took her there? Let me see. Uh, day before yesterday, I think. Yeah. Yeah, it was day before yesterday. I followed Pat's instructions through every devious curve to the top of Coldwater Canyon. The thing that interested me most was not what was ahead, but what or who was behind me in the big expensive car. The sun was hitting the windshield just right to obscure the driver. I slowed at the isolated address, noticed another big car parked in front. When I stopped, the car behind me stopped. A well-dressed woman got out and went into the house. As she did, she passed another well-dressed woman coming out. It looked like a change of shifts. As she drove away, I got out of the car and went up to the door. Someone somewhere was watching me. I could feel it. Yes? Oh, hello. I, uh... I, uh, do not believe you have an appointment, sir. Oh, no, I, I didn't think to make one. Excuse me, please. Uh, one moment. What a creep. And what a joint. You uh, will come in, please. Yeah, thanks. May I inquire, sir, who referred you here? I have to have a reference? Madame must insist on references, sir. Oh, she insists, yeah. Well, I'm a friend of Mrs. Collins. Lillian Collins? Oh, yes, yes. Mrs. Collins, yeah. yes. You will follow me, then. Madame will see you now. More to the point, I will see Madame. I followed the Peter Lorre character down a darkened hallway. As far as I could tell, there was no door ahead. It looked like a blind alley. Even in the darkness, I sensed that someone could see me. I didn't have long to think about it. Just when we reached what looked like an impasse, the little man ahead of me pulled some heavy drapes aside and nodded for me to enter. I walked into a room that was heavily draped on all sides, pungent with the smell of incense. And studying me from across the room, a Grecian-robed woman seated beside so help me a crystal ball. You will come in, please, and be seated. Yeah, I will. <clears throat> you see, I... Hush, uh, hmm? you will remain silent. It is so necessary, your silence. Bruno, you will go. Yes, madame. Hey, they're very clever, those drapes. <laughs> when they're closed, you can't tell where the door is. I must insist. Your silence is very important. Ah. You are in need of help, much help, or you would not be here. Yeah, well, you could say that. Yeah. You make it very difficult for me to see what is in store for you. The crystal is cloudy, very cloudy. I'll quit breathing on it. Please. Oh, excuse me. Now, you are seeking something, probing... Searching out. And this is not a good thing. Some things one must not pursue. I regret to say, for you I see much trouble. Great trouble and danger. <coughs> you are in need of rest, my friend. Rest and sleep. A long sleep. 
Bruno will help you. Bruno will help you to sleep. star, Gerald Moore, the second act of Philip Marlowe, and tonight's story, The Medium Was Rare. The madam's prediction was suffocatingly accurate. Bruno helped me sleep all right with a strong assist from a sponge full of ether. My watch said it was two hours later when I came out of the anesthetic a long way from the house on the top of Coldwater Canyon. I was in my own car parked on a strand of beach north of Santa Monica. Ten minutes and a blast of bourbon later, I entered Sylvia Jennings' apartment again. This time there was no sign of Cookie's baby blue car. I don't think Lillian will be long. She remembered some shopping she had to do. Did she? You don't look as if you felt very well, Mr. Marlowe. Oh, I feel just fine. I just woke up from a long sleep. And by the way, Mrs. Jennings, you really shouldn't call me Mr. Marlowe. Oh. Oh, yes. Now, where on earth do you suppose I got the name Marlowe? I really wouldn't know. Okay, where's Lillian, huh? I told you she went shopping. Without a purse? Well, what... That blue about? bag there. She was carrying it when I brought her here. Now, isn't that odd? Yes, isn't it? Uh. Oh, uh, the door. Do you excuse sure. me? Sure. Yes? Uh, what? I want to see Chisano. Chis- well, you must be mistaken. There's no one here by that name. He was here, doll. i seen him. What? Oh, just wait for him. No, you can't come in here. Well, Cookie, hello. Yeah. What is this, Marlowe? Well, it's one of those happy coincidences, Cookie. For the first time in my life, I'm glad to see you. Oh, close the door, Mrs. Jennings. <laughs> Make yourself at home. I don't understand this, Mr. Marlowe. Yeah, well, I was afraid I wouldn't for a while, but stick around. I think things are going to clear up in a hurry. Listen, Marlowe, what's the pitch here? You noticed him? Not as well as I'm going to. You sure you saw Chisano here, Cookie? Yeah, I'm sure. He leave here about an hour ago with another dame. Listen, you Brunette, keep quiet. Brunette, Cookie, blue and white dress? Yeah. And she didn't seem too happy about going with Chisano. Did you tell him? Sure. To a house up at the top of Coldwater Canyon. That's fine, Cookie. Then what happened? <laughs> you wouldn't believe it. I'm all set to move in, talk to Chisano, when some jerk jumps me and stuffs my face full of a sponge thing. It was loaded. You passed out? Yeah, for a while. When I wake up, I'm sitting in my car, big as you please, down at the bottom of the canyon. I figured Chisano started from here. He'd be coming back, so I come back. <laughs> And here you are. Interesting story, isn't it, Mrs. Jennings? None of it's true. Of course not. How'd you get a line on Chisano, Cookie? Well, it's talk in town. He's got a new racket. Got something to do with a rich doll. You know who this thing is? Tell me. She's right out of the blue book, that's who. I don't figure her with Chisano. Except uh, I gotta believe what I see. Yeah, Cookie, me too. Then maybe you two will believe this gun if you see it. What? Stay oh, where you... you are and keep the hands up. I know I'd get to know you better, Mrs. Jennings. Stop me if I'm wrong. You set up suckers, wealthy females, Conneman a visiting madame who tells fortunes based on what you've told you're her. You're crazy and you're in no position to talk. Maybe then the madame predicts some trouble for him. How huh? warns him of dangers ahead? Shut up. Like maybe your jewelry isn't safe where it is. Take it out of the bank. Keep it at home where you can watch it, Lillian. 
And when the poor stoop does that, you come in the front door and Shazana comes in the back to cop the jewels. I said shut up. Hey, Marlowe, you think that's the deal? I think that's the deal, Cookie. No, no, please. Are you breaking my arm? Only if I have to, baby. Get the gun, Cookie. Yeah, sure. And bring Mrs. Jennings along, Cookie. The three of us are going to have our fortunes told. How about that, Cesano? What a sweet deal he's got. I didn't figure him for so smart. He's a big brain, all right. And wait till he hears we're cutting in on him, sharing the take. Huh? This way, everybody makes dough. Me, you, Cesano, even the little doll here, huh? Now leave but... me alone. Easy does it, Cookie. You're pretty smart yourself. How'd you figure I was going to make a business deal with Cesano? Oh, yeah, no, Champ Marlowe. I got every Seamus figured. You're all looking for that one big sweet deal like Chisano's got to move in on. It's a natural. Yeah, you're right. Chisano will never go for it. He's got no choice, doll. Oh, hey, watch it, Marlowe. There's a geek in a prowl car ahead of you. Yeah, I've been watching him. Where's Mrs. Jennings' gun, Cookie? Right here. Why? Give it to me a minute, huh? Hey, you ain't gonna plug it. Come on, come on, give it to me. <laughs> okay, but I, I don't get you. Thanks. <laughs> We, you hit him. Yeah, and that's not all. What are you doing? You ran right into that police car. That's the way I played it, honey. Hey, that was a very bright... Oh, oh Mr. Marlowe. Got a couple of customers for you, officer. I had to move quick. Why, sure, sure, oh, but... Oh, you don't. oh yes, we do. The lively one's got a great racket. I'll tell you about it later. You... Cookie over there wants to see his parole officer. You, uh, you want me to take them in? I sure do. And tell your brethren to come to 6956 Canyon Rim, top of Coldwater Canyon, right away. With their muskets loaded. A house at the top of the canyon had the empty look that only occupied houses can have. Cookie had tipped his hand just in time. I was better off traveling light. I knew I'd have no trouble getting in. Shizana was probably expecting me. I was so right. You're late, Marlowe. Well, some days it takes me longer to come out of ether than others. <laughs> You must have done a good job, Bruno. I always try, Mr. Chisano. Oh, believe me, Chisano. He's earned a promotion. Get the business over with. Well, madame, I didn't recognize you without your crystal ball. Never mind that, Marlowe. Okay, I won't. Where's Lillian? Uh, she's, uh, she's arresting. Oh. Look, uh, Chisano, your nasty little racket here is one thing, but kidnapping is another, huh? Yeah, yeah. And murder something else again. You forced us, Mr. Marlowe. I warned you not to probe. Cesano, listen. I'm not kidding. If you've done anything to Lillian, I'll She's take you... She's perfectly safe. She's not been harmed yet. That's right. Not yet. She better not be. She... Oh, there you are, Lillian. She can't be... There's no one there. It's an old gag, Cesano. Gives me a chance at my gun. Now the three of you stand over there by the windows. Now, look, Marlowe. Now, you look. You and Bruno and Madame take a good look out the window and let me know when the law arrives. <laughs> you know, Madame, even without your crystal ball, I can see trouble for you. Much trouble. <laughs> Lillian had been given the ether treatment, too. We found her when the police arrived. She was okay, just thoroughly frightened. She wasn't all we found when we searched the place. Cesano hadn't fenced the jewelry as fast as he stole it. And the parade of women who came to claim it all later read like the social register. Eh, social register. 
The elites. The 400. Yeah, well, I know a place where the 400 give way to 4,000 luscious, lovely mountain trouts. Oh, the forest primeval, the murmuring pines and the... Yeah. You know what? I don't think I'm going to make it. Adventures of Philip Marlowe, bringing you Raymond Chandler's most famous character, star Gerald Moore, was produced and transcribed tonight by Cliff Howell and written for radio by Kathleen Height. The cast included Gloria Blondell, Ed Max, Gene Bates, Harry Bartell, Betty Lou Gerson, Lou Krugman, Ida Reese Marin, and Jay Novello. Gerald Moore may currently be seen in the Santana production, Sirocco. The special music for Philip Marlowe is composed by Pierre Garagank and conducted by Wilbur Hatch. Be sure to listen again next week at the same time when Philip Marlowe says... This time strange sounds came from a bungalow court. Or did they? An old woman thought so, but she had quite an imagination. A crack in the wall held the secret. A couple of guys held guns. And a nice guy held on for dear life. Roy Rowan speaking. This is the CBS Radio Network. From 1981, September the 8th to be exact, that was The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. The name of that episode was The Medium Was Rare. By the way, it was written by Kathleen Height. I think I said Catherine at the beginning. A couple fun notes on that one. Uh, Louis. Was that the, 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 the tough guy's name, Louis? The, the guy that just got out of prison? At any rate, he, he said something I've... Uh, I've never heard before. He was talking about the waitress. I was Gloria Blondell. And he said, what was she so kissed off about? Kissed off. I don't know if they were just trying to change the words a little bit to get it accepted by the censors, but I'd never heard that expression before. Also, when, uh, when the, um, oh, now I can't remember the names of the characters, but the lady that said her husband was back east on business. When you lived in California, if you stood on the beach in in Santa Monica, everything was back east, (laughs) right? The only thing west was Hawaii, which wasn't a state in 1951. So if you went to another state, if you went any place, if you went to Pasadena, you were going back east. That was always a phrase as a kid growing up because I had not done much traveling. Later, I did a lot of traveling. I really well traveled in this country. No, I'm not a world traveler, but I, I've been in just about every state in this country. But the uh, the term back east was sort of all-encompassing. It was sort of this mystic thing, you know. Where are you from? Oh, I'm from back east. Oh, he's going back east for business. I mean, that was just sort of a nebulous thing. What, what, are you talking about New York? Are you talking about Boston, Philadelphia? 
Are you talking about Pittsburgh? I mean, anything was just back east. And I, I, I thought that was unique to hear that phrase used in the in the show tonight. Just a note about Gloria Blondell. Of course, I don't know, she probably wasn't quite as famous as her sister Joan Blondell. I think Joan Blondell made more movies. But uh, Gloria first went on the stage when she was nine months old. Uh, She was described as a trooper at three years of age. Her family comprised a vaudeville troupe, the Bouncing Blondells, whose members were her parents, her sister, and her brother. She may be best remembered for her role as Honeybee Gillis in the 1950s era sitcom, which starred William Bendix, The Life of Riley. She was cast opposite Tom DeAndrea as her husband, who you also hear on some old radio shows. She married film producer Albert Broccoli in 1940. They divorced in 1945. He was the one that produced all of the uh, James Bond movies, Cubby Broccoli. On September 16, 1946, she married Victor Hunter in Monterey, California, and they stayed married until he died in 1980, just weeks after her sister Joan's death. Gloria and Victor had one premature daughter who died at birth. How sad. Gloria also nearly died from blood loss, and her life was only saved by an emergency hysterectomy. So she knew some tragedy in her life, as uh, most people do. She died at age 75, 1986, in Santa Monica. Gloria Blondell. Hey, here's a song from 1964 that I bet you haven't heard for a long time. I just moved in my new house today. Moving was hard, but I got squared away. Bills started ringing and chain ran loud. You had moved in a haunted house. Still, I made up my mind to stay. Nothing was gonna drive me away. When I seen something that give me the creep, had a one big eye and a two big feet. Stood right still and I did the freeze. He did a stroll right up to me Made a noise with a feet that sound like a drum Say you be here when the morning comes Say yes, I'll be here when the morning comes Be right here and ain't gonna run I bought this house and you know I'm born Ain't gonna run me off In my kitchen my stove was a blazing hot Coffee was a ballin' in the pot The grease had melted in my hand Had a hunk of meat in my hand From outer space that sat a man with the pots and pans Say that's hot I began to shout Drink a hot coffee right from the spout He ate the raw meat right from my hand I drank a hot grease with a frying pan Looked at me said you better run 
don't be here when the morning comes. See, yes, I'll be here when the morning comes. I'll be right here and ain't gonna run. I bought this house and the I'm Wow, remember that one? That was Gene Simmons from, I think it was 1964. The name of that song was The Haunted House. It, it was one of the top 100 selling songs of that, uh, of that year. Chester is uh, eating a big jelly donut back there, and I can't have that because I'm on a diet. I've lost 25 pounds, thank you, and I've got quite a few more to go, but I'm getting there this time. I'm going to do it. Look at that. He's... <laughs> he's holding it up, showing me how much he's enjoying it. Yeah, it's chocolate, isn't it? Yes, I know. Jelly and chocolate, yeah. Well, that's okay, Chester. I'll just uh, I'll just eat some Melba toast here. What's that? Yeah, you know, that's, that, I'm glad you brought that up, Chester. I, he and I were having a discussion the other day. I had a piece of dry Melba toast, and I happened to make the comment that I wonder where the term Melba toast came from. And he said that uh, he had the answer. What? Basil Rathbone. I. Oh. Okay. Chester says the answer is going to be revealed for us by his good friend, Basil Rathbone. In the era when the girl who was um, up to the minute was expected to display an hourglass figure, a buxom soprano christened Helen Porter Mitchell was the toast of New York and every capital in Europe. Today, in a way, she still is. You'll see what I mean in the course of this edition of Word Detective, prepared as an educational service of this station in cooperation with the makers of Underwood typewriters. In 1893, just one year before the debut of the very first Underwood typewriter, music-loving New Yorkers thronged to the Metropolitan Opera House for the American debut of the soprano who was already the darling of Europe. She came, she sang... She conquered. However, the particular incident which affects our dictionaries had to do not with the high C, but with low calories. As many soprano before and since, this noteworthy lady worried considerably about her weight. For many months during her tenure as prima donna of London's Covent Garden, she engaged the services of a masseuse, who came to our house in London every morning. But alas, it wasn't enough. She had to go on a strict diet, too. And herein lies her entrance into our dictionaries today. After one Covent Garden triumph, she went off to celebrate with a party of friends in the dining room of the Hotel Savoy. Exercising a great self-control, she shook her head at pheasant under glass and asked the waiter instead for a plain order of unbuttered toast. Somehow or other, the toast order was shunted off to an inexperienced assistant. When the prima donna received her snack, it was dry, thin, and hard. But instead of reacting to this with a temper tantrum, the soprano not only quietly ate the toast, but asked for another order of it, exactly the same. And now I suspect you know how this lady of the opera fits into our dictionaries, and in some case, our diets. I'll type the expression out for you right now on my Underwood typewriter, the only typewriter with the golden touch. It was Melba Toast. After the turn of the century, prima donna Nellie Melba. The singer was born Helen Porter Mitchell in Australia back in the 60s, but when she made her opera debut in Brussels in 1887, she adopted the stage name Melba after the city of Melbourne in Australia. 
As any lover of rich desserts knows, Madame Nelly was responsible for the naming not only of the diet dish of Milba toast, but also a high-calorie concoction of vanilla ice cream peaches and claret sauce originated by the great French chef Escoffier, in short, Peach Milba. All of which means that Madame Melba was the only opera singer in history to be the toast of the town and also its dessert. Well, thank, thank you, Chester. That's very interesting. I, I didn't know that. So Melba toast came from, from this soprano and Peach Melba. I, I, you know, I, don't, I remember hearing about Peach Melba as a kid. I don't think I've ever been in a restaurant that offered Peach Melba. But anyway, okay, you're going to play one more song? All right. Is this about Melba toast? It's about my diet? What? Okay. Chester has a song that he said would be very appropriate since I am trying to lose weight. Comedy Corner, we're going back to January the 16th, 1949, for a very, very funny, laugh-out-loud funny episode of the Jack Benny Show. We're going to, uh, the first part of the show has Jack looking through his scrapbook with Rochester, working in his scrapbook, 
And then the second part has to do with one of my favorite bits that was ever done on The Benny Show, and that's a visit with Ronald and Benita Coleman, Jack's uh, next-door neighbors. And just a couple funny things to watch for in this one. Jack constantly borrowing stuff from the Colemans. <laughs> it's just a great, great ongoing gag. And and then in the second part of the show, uh, Ronald Coleman falls asleep and has a dream. And in it, he imagines that he is Jack Benny, based on something his wife said before he drifted off. Absolutely hysterical. I hope you enjoyed as much as I did. So here we go from January 1949, The Jack Benny Show. with Mary Livingston, Phil Harris, Rochester, Dennis Day, yours truly, Don Wilson, and our guest, Mr. and Mrs. Ronald Coleman. And now, ladies and gentlemen, let's go out to Jack Benny's home in Beverly Hills, where we find Rochester helping Jack fix up his scrapbook. Uh, Rochester, have you got the scissors? Yeah, I'm cutting something out of the front page of the Pasadena News. It's a picture of you kissing the Queen of the Rose Parade. Oh, yes. Gee, that is a nice picture of me, isn't it? And some color, too. It would be even nicer if your eyelashes weren't so gray. (laughs) Rochester, my lashes aren't gray. Just that my eyes are so blue, they pick up lint. (laughs) (laughs) Now, Rochester... I've got enough clippings for my scrapbook. I better start pasting them in. No? Boss, I looked everywhere, but I can't find the glue. Well, just mix some flour and water. That'll make a good paste. I thought of that, too, but we're all out of flour. We're out of flour? Yeah, yesterday I had hardly enough to finish baking the bread. Well, if we're short of flour, why'd you bake so much bread? I had to. Barbara Stanwyck ordered four extra loaves. <laughs> oh. With raisins yet. <laughs> Well, why don't you run over to the Coleman's and borrow a cup of... Hey, wait a minute. I haven't seen Mr. Coleman for quite a while. Hand me a cup. I'll go get the flour. Here you are. I'll be right back, Rochester. Hmm. As long as I'm going over, I really should have brought a larger cup. Oh, well, I guess this cup will be all right. Can it be the trees that fill the breeze with rare... See, there are a lot of people out today. La 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 la. Thank you. Gee, the Coleman's keep their lawn nice and... Oh, isn't that cute? A garbage can shaped like an Oscar. (laughs) You just lift up the head and throw the stuff in. When I make my next picture, maybe they'll give me a garbage can. I mean, an Oscar. (laughs) Who 
Oh, it's you, Mr. Benny. Oh, hello, Sherwood. Is Mr. Coleman in? Uh, yes, yes. He's in the library. Well, could you tell him that I, I, I'd like to borrow a cup of flour? Oh, there's no need to tell him. I'll give you the flour. Oh, shall I come in? Uh, that won't be necessary. <laughs> I'll sift it to you through the screen door. Sack right hmm. here on the shelf. What is that? Hmm. Oh, by the way, Sherwood, I tried to call Mr. Coleman on the phone this morning, but I couldn't get him. Uh, did he change his number since I talked to him last week? Yes, sir, three times. <laughs> oh, well, I hope he got the one he likes. You know? Will this be enough flour, Mr. Benny? Yes, yes, I'm just going to use it to make a little paste. You see, I'm working on my scrapbook, and I'm sticking in the many things that have been said about me. You save those? <laughs> Yes, yes. Well, thanks for the shower, Flurwood. I mean, thanks for the flowers. You're quite welcome, sir. <laughs> this weather, my tongue froze there. <laughs> well, I'm... Yeah, I must ask the Coleman's to put a gate in the back so I won't have to walk clear out to the sidewalk. Yada dee da dum da dum da dee Hmm. There's Ronnie's long underwear hanging on the line. He's got a gate in those. <laughs> Jack, Jack! Oh, hello, Mary. Hey, come on in the house, Mary. Well, I haven't got time. I just stopped by to ask if I could skip rehearsal tomorrow. Skip rehearsal? Why? Well, my sister babe is coming in from Plainfield, and she's trying to forget a broken romance. Oh, no, not Sebastian. <laughs> no, no, a new one. Oh. And she was so in love with him, they were all ready to elope. The ladder was up against the house, the window was open, and Babe was so embarrassed. Why? He wasn't home. <laughs> yeah, it's a shame. What, what did she do? Well, as long as she was up there, she painted the house. <laughs> well, when a guy gives you the brush, I guess you must... <laughs> Who was that, uh... Mary, you know you gotta ad lib once in a while. Mary, who was this, uh, who was this new love of hers? Well, I don't know his name, but she said he was making good money. He was a glass blower. A glass blower? Yeah. Whenever Babe went out with her, Mama could always tell when he'd kissed her. How? When Babe came home, her head would be three times its size. Three times its size? That was when he gave her a plain kiss. Once he got fancy and her head looked like a Studebaker. Good old babe. I knew she could do it. Say, Mary, why don't you come in for a little while? Oh, no, no, Jack. I've got to run along now. See you later. Okay. Da-da-dee-da-dum, da-dum. Gee, that's a nice Cadillac Mary has. I would have gotten one, too, but they didn't make them then. <laughs> Those days, they only had three models. Maxwell, Saxons, and horses. <laughs> Oh, Rochester! Rochester, I got the flour so we, we can make the... Uh, you paste. won't need it now, boss. I found some glue. I've already pasted things in the book. Wait a minute. This stuff doesn't seem to be sticking very well. Rochester, is this glue fresh? Fresh? Only two days ago, it was eight to one at Santa Anita. <laughs> what? I had him across the board. Wind, place, and mucilage. <laughs> 
No. Well, how do you like that? I'll get the door. Oh, hello, Dennis. Hello, Mr. Benny. I just came over to tell you the good news. Good news? What? I finally got two tickets for the Rose Bowl game. <laughs> two tickets for the Rose Bowl game? Dennis, that game was played almost three weeks ago. I know. That's why they're so hard to get now. <laughs> Dennis. Dennis, come in a minute. Now, look, now, let me get this straight. Maybe I'm the one that's confused. Are these tickets for the game that was just played or the one that's going to be played next year? What do you care? I'm not taking you. <laughs> Dennis, I can't stand this crazy talk. Now, do me a favor, will you? Go outside and come back in again. Okay. <laughs> oh, hello, Dennis. Howdy, bub. <laughs> Well, that's better. Now you're Titus Moody. Yep, and I've got two tickets to the Rose Bowl game. Now, put that up! <laughs> Look, kid, what did you come over here for, anyway? Well, I, I wanted you to hear the song I'm going to do on the program. Well, why didn't you say so? Let's hear it, will you? Okay, ya? okay. okay. Fancy was a peaceful man, if you know what I mean. The cops picked up the pieces after Clancy left the scene. He never looked for trouble, that's a fact you can assume. But nevertheless, when trouble would press, Clancy lowered the boom. Oh, that Clancy! Oh, that Clancy! Whenever they got his Irish up, Clancy lowered the boom. Boom, 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 boom. O'Leary was a fighting man, they all knew he was tough. He strutted round the neighborhood to shooting off his gun. He picked a fight with Clancy, then and there he sealed his doom. Before you could shout, O'Leary, look out! Clancy lowered the boom. Oh, that Clancy! Oh, that Clancy! Whenever they got his Irish up, Clancy lowered the boom. Boom, 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 boom. Now Clancy left the barbershop with tonic on his hair. He walked into the pool room and he met O'Reilly there. O'Reilly said, for goodness sake, now do I smell perfume? Before you could stack your cue in the rack, Clancy lowered the boom. Oh, that Clancy. Oh, that Clancy. Whenever they got to the Irish up, Clancy lowered the boom. Boom, 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 boom. The neighbors all turned out for Kate O'Grady's wedding night. McDougal said, let's have some fun. I, I, I think I'll start a fight. He wrecked the hall, then kissed the bride and pulverized the groom. Then quick as a wink before you could think, Clancy lowered the boom. Oh, that Clancy. Oh, that Clancy. Whenever they got to say, wish up Clancy lowered the boom. Oh, that Clancy. Oh, that Clancy. Whenever they got to say, wish up Clancy lowered the boom. Boom, 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 boom. Sure, it was the greatest sight you ever did see when Clancy lowered the boom. <laughs> Dennis, you sang that beautifully. Yeah, I heard it. One bad kid. Phil, I didn't see you. Why didn't you tell me you were here? Well, I didn't want to intrude while you were so enraptured by Mr. Day's musical rendition. <laughs> Phil. Phil, that come out of you? Why? What's so incongruous about that? 
Incongruous? Listen to me, Jackson. I'm trying to improve myself in literature, in English, and, and even in music. Music, too, huh? Well, that I'm glad to hear. Uh, <laughs> certainly, Jackson. I just came from the library where I picked up this book on music by Grofet. Oh, Ferdy Grofet? No, his brother George. George Grofet? I never heard of him. Well, here's the book right here. I've been reading it all morning. There it is on the cover, George Grofet. That's geography. <laughs> couldn't laugh. <laughs> Phil, if you want to learn about... Dennis, get away from my scrapbook and... Dennis, stop drinking out of that bottle. It's glue. Dennis, it's glue. Oh, my goodness. Dennis, speak to me. better stop it, kid. If you want to get any place in show business, you've got to stop being ridiculous, ludicrous, incompetent, and uncouth. <laughs> Phil, where'd you learn all those words? Well, they're in my contract with Rexall. <laughs> what? Right under the sobriety clause. <laughs> Phil, do you know what sobriety means? No, what? It means that according to that contract, you're not allowed to take a drink. Holy smoke, I've signed my life away. <laughs> Phil, Phil, denatured boy. <laughs> Do me a favor. Pick up Dennis and that geography book and let's... Oh, I have a wonderful contract with my sponsor, Colgate. I don't have to sign anything. We just shake hands. Really? Yeah, but I think he's nearsighted. Your sponsor nearsighted? Why? When my option came up, instead of shaking my hand, he grabbed me by the throat. <laughs> well, if you gave him that Rose Bowl routine, I don't blame him. Now, look, kid. Boss! Boss! What is it, Rochester? I was preparing your lunch, and I find we're all out of butter. We're all out of butter? Well, you know what to do. I'm on my way. <laughs> Mr. Coleman, here I come. You're the one we borrow from. Oh, Ronnie. Ronnie, where are you? I'm in the library, Benita. Benita, who is that at the back door? Mr. Benny's butler, Manchester. Yeah. <laughs> Milk? No. Sugar? No. Cream? No. Mayonnaise? No. Uh, butter? Right! Wonderful. If you ever went on a quiz program, we could spend two glorious weeks in Honolulu. Yes, Benita, I'm getting sharp. <laughs> yeah, but you know, let's not talk about Benny. It only upsets me. Borrowing, borrowing, borrowing. What a neighbor. Well, darling, sometimes he tries to be helpful. During the freezing weather the other night when you worried about our orange trees, Jack did come over and lend you a smudge pot. Yeah, some smudge pot. Three old toupees smoldering in a broken pressure cooker. <laughs> But then what about the snow? Tuesday morning, he volunteered to shovel all the snow away from our house, and he did it, too. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that, that was shrewd of me, telling him I dropped a dime on our front lawn. 
tricked him into doing all that work. Yes, Benita, I must confess, even though it makes me a bit of a stinker, I did. <laughs> it's little things like that that make life worth living. For once, I got even with him for his constant borrowing. Now, Ronnie, you shouldn't be too hard on Jack. After all, it isn't his fault that he's like he is. It, it, it's just fate. What do you mean? Well, you know the famous saying... There, but for the grace of God, go I. Yes, but, but what's that got to do with it? Well, people can't help being who they are. It, it's fate. You could have been born Jack Benny. And he could have been Ronald Coleman. Benita, have you been nipping the sherry again? <laughs> Well, I'm too tired to think about it now. If we're going out to dinner tonight, I'm going to take a little nap. I'll lie down here on the... Oh! Ronnie, I should have told you he borrowed the couch, too. <laughs> well, of all the... Darling, darling, if you want to take your nap, why don't you just sit here in this easy chair? Well... You'd better hurry while it's still here. <laughs> all right, I will. I'll turn out the lights and leave you alone. Uh, thank you. Have a nice nap, dear. Yes. Uh, sometimes Benita has the weirdest ideas. <laughs> Imagine her saying it's just fate <laughs> that I could have been born Jack Benny. Oh, what a nauseating thought. <laughs> uh, this is a comfortable chair. <laughs> it feels so good to close my eyes. Yes, Ronnie. You could have been born Jack Benny. You could have been Jack Benny. You could be Jack Benny. You could be Jack Benny. You could be Jack Benny. Oh, boss! Boss! Mr. Benny! What is it, Rochester? Today's... Today's payday. Some of your cast is waiting in the living room for their money. Hmm. <laughs> I might as well go in. Uh, help me on with my shoes, Rochester. Why? You'll just have to take them off again when you pay them. <laughs> yeah, I guess you're right. You know, Rochester, I'm a pretty lucky man. My cast has been wonderful to me. They're always on time, they work hard, they try their best, and always give great performances. I wish there was something I could do to show my gratitude. Why don't you give them a raise? I will not... <laughs> I better not keep them waiting. Can it be the trees, the trees, with rare and magic perfume? Oh, no, it isn't. Why, hello, kid. Hello, hello Jack. Well, I understand you're all here for your salaries. Here's yours, Mary. Well, thanks, Jack. Don. Thanks, Jack. Dennis. Whoops, dropped it. <laughs> Jack, did you hear the latest news about Don? He's got another show now. Well, congratulations, Don. What program is it? Well, it's the Alan Young show, Jack. We started last week. Alan Young, eh? He's a clever comedian. 
How does it feel, having two shows? Oh, wonderful. And the nice thing about it is that one of my bosses is young. <laughs> Don. 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 Blimp belly. Now, any more cracks like that and... Ouch, Dennis, why are you biting my leg? You're standing on my salary. <laughs> Since you're all here... I want to invite you to my birthday party on February the 14th. Say, that's right, Jack. Next month is your birthday. Yep. Time sure flies. One more month and I won't be 39 anymore. 39? Where were you born? On a slow boat to China? A slow boat to China. Slow boat to China. Slow boat to China. <laughs> Better watch it, sister, or you'll be on a fast bus to the May Company. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, Jack. By the way, I meant to tell you I just got another letter from my mother. Really? And what does the command decision of your father's life have to say? <laughs> oh, nothing much, except that the dentist held a convention in Plainfield, and my sister Babe was voted Miss Lower Plate Wobble of 1949. <laughs> Good old babe. I knew she could do it. <laughs> oh, uh, by the way, Jack, what are you planning to do on the program next week? Well, I want to do a Shakespearean sketch, and I'm going to try and get Ronald Coleman as a guest star. I've even offered him a hundred dollars. A hundred dollars? Why, you can't get Ronald Coleman to do Shakespeare for that? Done. He's such a big ham, he'll jump at the chance. <laughs> well, have you finished the script for Mr. Coleman yet? Yes, Mary, I have it right here. Listen to this wonderful Shakespearean soliloquy I'm going to have Ronnie do. <clears throat> to be or not to be, that is the question. Whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune or to enjoy a lucky and so to feel thy level best. <laughs> to smoke, to puff, a chance to blow a smoke ring. Aye, there's the thrill. <laughs> Come, let me light thee. Art thou not round and firm and fully packed? <laughs> Art thou not first again with friends, Romans, countrymen? Art thou not a noble creation? Your praise is tripping lightly from the nimble tongue of speedy rigs. Aye, <laughs> Horatio, the tobacco's the thing that makes a lucky fitting for a king. Yes, Ronnie, you could have been Jack Benny. And Jack Benny could have been born Ronald Coleman. Jack could have been Ronald Coleman. Oh, Ronnie! Ronnie, where are you? I'm in the library, Benita. <laughs> oh, yes, you always are. What are you doing, Ronnie? I'm looking at the list of nominees for the Academy Awards. My name is Nonnet. But, darling, you didn't make a picture this year. How can you expect to win anything? I thought they might give me some sort of an award for living next to Benny. 
Gad, how I despise that blue-eyed baboon. Oh, darling, don't pick on his appearance. Why not? After all, Benny's eyes aren't really blue. I happen to know that he dyes them. Don't forget him, dear. Remember what happens to your blood pressure when you think of Benny. I can't help thinking of that jerk, always borrowing eggs, milk, cream, butter. Doesn't he have anything of his own? What does he keep in his icebox? A film of the horn blows of midnight. Oh, yes, if I ever made a picture like that, I'd ask Clancy to lower the boom. Oh, Ronnie, forget Jack. And let's talk about something else. I haven't told you before, but I'm planning a hunting trip for us up in the High Sierras. In the High Sierras? Or are we going to hunt bear? No, we'll be wearing your long underwear. <laughs> Benita, you're a jolly one. That's not funny, Benita. Anyway, I don't want to go hunting. I'd rather go to the races at Santa Anita. Benita. Oh, Ronnie, you're so cute. Come here, darling. Oh, don't, dear. Don't. <laughs> you're tickling me. Oh, stop being so dignified. It's only us. You know, darling, I'm a lucky man. Having such a beautiful wife. Come here, Benita. Let me kiss you. Oh, Ronnie, that was wonderful. Kiss me again. Ronnie, Ronnie, Ronnie. you, Benita? Yes, I've been calling you for five minutes. Oh, well, where did he go? Where did Benny go? Benny? Jack wasn't here. Oh, he wasn't, eh? Now, Benita, I distinctly saw you kiss him. Me kiss Jack Benny? Have you gone out of your... Oh, wait a minute. You must have dreamed it. Huh? Oh, yes, yes, yes. I guess I did. Well, that settles it. We'll have to move. Move? <laughs> move why? Benita... I don't mind Benny borrowing everything I've got. And I don't mind Benny ruining my life. But when he starts to louse up my dreams, that's too much, my girl. Too much! Thanks, Ronnie and Benita, and good night, everybody. January 16th, 1949. That was the Jack Benny Show. What a great running gag that was. Ronald Coleman and Benita Hume as Jack's next-door neighbors. And the dream that Coleman had there, where he was Jack Benny, was hysterical. The part of his dream where Jack Benny played him was funny, too. But I thought the first part was, was even funnier. I was wondering if that dream sequence was sort of a an homage to um, the Halls of Ivy. Remember how he would constantly daydream or or dream on that show? But actually, that show didn't wasn't introduced until June of 1949, which was five months after this Benny show. So maybe maybe Don Quinn picked up on the uh, on the dream sequence and incorporated it into the Halls of Ivy. 
I, I maybe will never know, or maybe it's been revealed someplace that I'm not aware of. I just downloaded a number of Jack Benny shows that I found from a good source. And the thing about the Benny shows, I like the ones from the late 40s and 50s myself. That's what I like to play on the show, because after all, the name of our show is Boomer Boulevard. But the sound quality is not always easy to find on these, and and I found a number of good ones. So we are going to play a number of Jack Benny shows in the weeks ahead. I know they're everybody's favorites because they're just so doggone funny. While we're on the subject of funny, do you remember when Woody Allen used to do stand-up? Here's a, a compilation of a few of his bits from the probably the early 60s. I was talking about this on TV last week. I escape always into a rich fantasy life that comes from an unhappy childhood. I come from a poor family. My father worked at Coney Island. He had a concession on the boardwalk where you knock over milk bottles with baseballs, which I could never do for my entire childhood. There was a tidal wave at Coney Island when I was a child. It ripped up the boardwalk and did about a million dollars worth of damage, houses and everything. The only thing left standing were those little milk bottles. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I would say over-disciplined, which is really humiliating. I had to be home 9.30 prom night. <laughs> I made a reservation at the Copacabana for 5 o'clock. <laughs> I took my date and we watched them set up. <laughs> I was, as a matter of fact, when I think of it, terrorized as an adolescent. I was not that young when it happened. I was, uh, I guess, about 13 or so at the time. I was on my way to an amateur music contest. And my family is musical. You should know that. My father used to play the tuba as a young man. He tried to play the tuba. He tried to play Flight of the Bumblebee. And the tuba blew his liver out through the horn. And I'm on the subway with my clarinet, Jerry Jazz musician style, unwrapped and everything. And these 12 guys come running through the subway, but really hairy knuckle types, you know, race through. They, apparently they had just come from a settlement house, you know, because they were dribbling a social worker as they went through the car, you know? <laughs> and they stopped right over me, you know, because I was conspicuous, because I had just eaten a seafood lunch and I'd forgotten to remove the lobster bib, you know? <laughs> so I look like a farmer with a fat tie, you know, and Neptune on it. <laughs> They stand over me and they start cursing and smoking and tearing up seats, you know, and I don't say anything, you know. I just sit there and look down, continue reading Heidi. <laughs> and all of a sudden, the leader puts his finger under my neck like this and goes, I got up. And he snapped his knee up quickly and I refused to give him the satisfaction of doubling over. But I did one of the greatest imitations of Lily Pons you've ever heard. <laughs> I hit an M over high C on the BMT. <laughs> Showed up an hour late for the music contest. Came in second, anyhow. I won two weeks at interfaith camp, <laughs> where I was sadistically beaten by boys of all races and creeds. <laughs> Listen to this. I was watching one night the, um, whatchamacallit, the Ed Sullivan show, and Sullivan had on a hypnotist called the great Ronaldo. And Ronaldo got four guys out of the audience and he hypnotized them. And he said to them, you think you're a fire engine. And I'm home watching and I get drowsy and I fall asleep. And I wake up an hour later, I turn the set off, 
And suddenly I'm seized with an uncontrollable impulse to dress up in my red flannel underwear. <laughs> which I do when I'm looking at myself in the mirror. And suddenly the phone rings, I burst out the front door and start running down Fifth Avenue fast, making a siren noise. At 14th Street, I hit a guy at an intersection who was also wearing red flannel underwear. <laughs> we decided to work as one truck. <laughs> we start running down to the village. Suddenly, two guys in red flannel underwear pass us running uptown. We figure they must know where the fire is. We turn and follow. At 86th Street, a cop flags us down because there's four guys in red flannel underwear running up the street. He says, you're coming down to headquarters, get into the car. And I start giggling hysterically, because this jerk is trying to get a fire engine into a lousy little Chevy. <laughs> and down at the station house, there's hundreds of guys in red flannel underwear. These, I should just add, parenthetically, these stories are true. These things actually happen to me. I don't make them up. My life is a series of, of um, these crises that, that um, came on one night some months ago and I went to the closet in my bedroom and a moth ate my sport jacket. He was laying on the floor nauseous, you know? It's a yellow and green striped jacket, you know? Little fat moth laying there groaning, you know? Part of the sleeve hanging out of his mouth. I gave him two plain brown socks. They said, eat one now and eat one in a half hour. Someone asked me if I would tell this story a long time ago. It's a weird story. I was out in Los Angeles, and I was at a party with a very big Hollywood producer. And at that time, they wanted to make a, an elaborate cinemascope musical comedy out of the Dewey Decimal System. <laughs> and they wanted me to work on it. And I go out to the producer's building in downtown Los Angeles, and I walk into his elevator, and there are no people in the elevator, no buttons on the wall or anything. And I hear a voice say, kindly call out your flaws, please. And I look around, and I'm alone. And I panic, and I read on the wall that it's a new elevator, and it works on a sonic principle, and it's all sound. All I have to do is say what floor I want to go to, and it takes me there. So I say, three, please. And the doors close, and the elevator starts going up to three. And on the way up, I began to feel very self-conscious, because I talk, I think, with a slight New York accent. <laughs> and the elevator spoke quite well. <laughs> and I get out, and I'm walking down the hall, and I look back, and I thought I heard the elevator make a remark. And I turn quickly, and the door's closed, and the elevator goes down, you know, and I didn't want to get involved at that time with an elevator in Hollywood. Woody Allen, with uh, a couple bits there that he did back in the 60s. He was a very, very funny guy when he used to do that. I remember him on the Ed Sullivan Show. Really used to laugh out loud. Say, we were playing some songs from 1964. Here's a song that was done by one of the most prolific songwriters of that time period, and that was Burt Bacharach. He had so many huge hit songs, and many of them were sung by Dionne Warwick. Trains 
song, Burt Bacharach, Dionne Warwick. Oh, it's just gorgeous. And the lyrics, I don't know if Hal David wrote those lyrics. He probably did. But boy, how meaningful. Trains and boats and planes. I remember when Carol and I were dating. I was living in New York City and she was in Illinois. And we would, uh, that was of course before Skype and phone calls were very expensive and neither one of us had a lot of money. But every two months we would uh, get together. Uh, either she would fly into New York or I would fly out to Illinois. And the whole idea of being so excited to get on that airplane to go see her and then how sad to get on the airplane to leave. And I remember those feelings. And that song just seems so appropriate. Trains and Boats and Planes. Now. Oh.
you know what that music means. It means it is time to travel back in time to the 1870s, the Old West, Dodge City, Kansas. Walking up Front Street with Marshal Matt Dillon. Along the way, we're bound to meet up with Kitty and Doc and Chester and the whole gang on Gunsmoke. This week, we're going to listen to an episode that was originally broadcast on CBS on May the 26th in 1956, and it's entitled Manhunt. City and in the territory on West, there's just one way to handle the killers and the spoilers, and that's with a U.S. Marshal and the smell of gun smoke. Gun smoke. Starring William Conrad, the transcribed story of the violence that moved west with young America, and the story of a man who moved with it. I'm that man, Matt Dillon, United States Marshal. The first man they look for and the last they want to meet. It's a chancy job, and it makes a man watchful and a little lonely. your hurry, Chester. Oh, hello, Mr. Dillon. Hey, I'm going over to the stable. No, what for? Are you leaving town? No, sir. Uh, Hank Young's over there. I got to see him. Well, I'm not doing anything. I'll go with you if you don't mind. Well, good. I run into Mr. Bowers, and he asked me to give Hank a message for him. No. Well, Hank is a real nice fellow, Mr. Dillon. <laughs> well, I didn't say he wasn't, Chester. Yes, sir, I know. But I was just thinking there ain't many fellows around here steady and peaceable as he is. I guess that's one reason Bars has kept him working at the ranch for so long. Mm-hmm. There he is. Where? Cinching up his saddle with his back to us there. Oh. Yeah, yeah Mr. Jones, I'm going to surprise him. Walk easy, huh? Oh. Now, take it easy, oh. Hank. Oh, Marshal. I didn't know who it was. You shouldn't come up on me like that, Chester. 
Merciful goodness, I guess I shouldn't. Now, where's my gun? Oh, there's my gun. Just a wonder it didn't go off, you hitting at me that way, Marshal. How come you're wearing a gun, Hank? I don't think I ever saw you with one. I've wore guns before, Marshal. No, I haven't around here. No, maybe not around here. Uh, Hank? Uh, Hank, Mr. Bower's going to be an hour or so longer than he thought. He is, huh? Uh-huh. All right, you tell him I'll see him out the ranch. We've got work to do out there. So long. So long. So long, Hank. My. I guess I really upset him. Uh, something sure has. Hank ain't never acted like that before. We are always kindly teasing each other. Well, I wouldn't worry about Marshall, it. Dylan? Yeah. yeah? I want to talk to you, Marshal. Well, go ahead. My name's Quillen. Ben Quillen. I've only been here a few days. I've been meaning to get acquainted, but uh, I thought I'd do a little scouting around for myself first. Oh? Uh, what's the name of that man you were just talking to, Marshal? Well, why? Oh, he kind of fits the description of a fella I've been hunting. You see, I'm a deputy sheriff. Oh? There's my badge. Deputy sheriff, Prescott, Arizona. Yeah, I got papers to prove it, too. Hey, you've come a long way, Colin. I think it's going to be worth it, Marshal. Here. Take a look at this. What is it? It's a warrant for Ike Abbott. Prescott, Arizona, July 6, 18-something. It's kind of smudged. You read the description. Hmm. Don't Ike Abbott sound like your friend who just left? Sure does to me. Same height, same build. Same kind of face, brown hair and eyes. Just about everything. Is that true, Mr. Dillon? Well, it uh, fits generally, yeah. But what's he wanted for? It's a warrant for his arrest, Justin. He's charged with murder. Hank? We heard he was hiding out around Dodge somewhere. He's been here about three years, hasn't he? Yeah, just about. Why didn't you make your arrest a few minutes ago, Quillen? I wanted to be sure, Marshal. And I also want to talk to you first. After all, this is your territory. Hank's wearing a gun, Quillen. Does he know you? No. But I've been asking around about anybody from Arizona. He must have heard about it. Well, I guess I'll ride out and take him. No. What? Hank Young's ready to fight. I don't want to kill him. I'll go. You mean you'll bring him in for me? Well, if I'm sure he's the man you're after, then I think I can find out. Okay. Watch your step, Marshal. He's already killed one man. Don't worry, Quillen. So have I. Sitting in the bunkhouse door, Mr. Dillon. I thought he said he had work to do. He had nothing special to do except get out of Dodge. You think he's going to make trouble? Well, I hope not. Hello, Hank. Marshal. Chester. Hello, Hank. Looking for me. Uh, there are a couple of things I want to ask you, Hank. You go right ahead, Marshal. You've known me about three years, right? About that. 
And you know, when I go after a man, I generally bring him back. So you do, Marshal. Is that why you put your gun away? Well, I declare, he ain't armed no more, is he? No, I ain't. Well, you told me the truth, Hank. You always dealt fair, Marshal. I'll tell you the truth. Well, there's a deputy sheriff in town named Ben Quillen. He's got an Arizona warrant for Ike Abbott's arrest. I thought so. Was it murder, Hank? That how that warrant reads, Marshal? Mm-hmm. Figured so. What else you want to know? You still haven't told me why you put your gun away. Done some thinking on the way back here. No, they'd sent somebody after me, but if I killed him, I'd just have to face you next. I wouldn't be getting nowhere that way. All right, Hank. Come on, Chester. Let's get back to town. Mr. Dillon, are we going to take Hank back? I said let's go, Chester. Chester. Good morning, Mr. Dillon. Ben Quillen been here yet? Oh, I just got here myself. Oh, didn't you sleep here last night? Well, see, no, sir, I didn't. Oh? Uh-huh. I ain't never gonna set up all night playing poker again. Oh, uh, I was kind of hoping you'd maybe outgrown poker. <laughs> I'm getting there. Morning, Marshal. Chester. Quillen. Morning, Quillen. Well, Marshal, did he put up a fight? No, no, there was no trouble. But he is the man I'm after. He's Ike Abbott, isn't he? Yeah, he's the man. Well, I sure do thank you, Marshal. Now, if you'll turn him over to me, we'll be on our way and I won't be bothering you no more. I didn't bring him in, Quillen. Why not? Well, I guess maybe I didn't have the stomach to arrest a man who's been a friend. It was never caused any trouble around here. That don't keep him from being a murderer. And I've got a legal warrant for him. Then you'll go get him. I thought you didn't want no killing. He isn't armed. You've caused me to waste a whole day, Marshal. Why don't you go get your man, Quillen, and get him out of here? I don't want any part of it. You admit he's a friend of yours, Marshal. I just hope you're not trying to trick me somehow. Because I'll hold you responsible. What's on your mind tonight, Matt? Well, Kitty, it sure isn't drinking beer and sitting around the Long Branch. You know, you sometimes act like you've been schooled in a slave market. <laughs> Drink your beer, Kitty. I'm buying. Oh, you are? And <laughs> I take it all back. Oh. What? Here's Ben Quillen. Now I know what's been bothering you. Marshal, I want to talk to you. What's your trouble, Quillen? You gave me to believe there'd be no trouble with Hank Young or whatever you call him. Was there? He wasn't armed, Marshal. At least he didn't lie about that. And just what did I lie about, Quillen? About them four friends of his. What friends? 
I don't like being made a fool of, Marshal. I don't like going after an unarmed man who's hiding behind four shotguns. Ah, I see. You trying to tell me you didn't know about it? No, Quillen, I didn't. You swear to that? Now you can take it or leave it. All right, I'll believe you. Providing you ride out there with me. I can't face them men alone and be suicide. It's your party, Quillen. I'm not getting paid to make your arrests. You wouldn't be scared, would you, Marshal? I think we've talked just about enough, Quillen. All right. I'll telegraph Prescott. I'll get me some authority for some deputies. Wait a minute, Quillen. What? You meet me at the stable in the morning. I'll go with you. Here they are, Marshal. Waiting for us. How are we going to shoot it out against four men with shotguns, Marshal? You just keep out of it, Quillen. Hello, Hank. Gentlemen. This here ain't my idea, Marshal. The boys just heard about everything. I can't talk them out of a fight. That's right, Marshal. Ain't nobody taking a friend of ours off to Arizona. Warrant or no warrant. Now listen, you men. Hank Young's a friend of mine, too. Isn't that right, Hank? I always thought so, Marshal. But you know me well enough. If any man needs taken in, I'll take him in. Be kind of like walking into a cannon, won't it, Marshal? Maybe. But more than one of us will die. Now, hold on. I don't want a lot of blood spilled over me. Just just because I killed a man 12 years ago is no reason any of you men should die now. Wait a minute. Quillen. What? You got that warrant with you? Of course I have. Let me see it. Well, come on, let me see it. Well, I don't know what for. Give it to me. You've seen it once. What are you looking for? Well, is something wrong with it? Nah, it's legal, all right. And give it back. Yeah. Hank, I've changed my mind about taking you today. Now, wait. Shut up, Quillen. Will you come into my office three days from now, Hank? We'll settle this thing then. Okay, Marshal. Sure, it's okay, Hank. We'll be right along with you. Won't we, boy? We'll be right we'll be with you. We ain't backing down one bit, Marshal. You better remember that. Let's go, Chester. Did you finally get your telegraph? Yeah. Just in time, it looks. I know. That's quite a crowd waiting for you. Think there'll be trouble? Yeah, there could be. Anything you want me to do? No. Uh, you better wait here. All right. But you be careful now. Them friends of Hank sure look like the mean business. Yeah, sure.
Well, Marshal, now come in, like you said. I know you would, Hank. Let's get this over with, Marshal. I waited long enough. You've waited too long, Quillen. What? Hank, I want your friends to wait across the street over there. We ain't moving, Marshal. All four of you go over there and wait. Now, will you do what he says, Jim? Go on now. Jim, he ain't the kind of trick nobody. I mean it, boys. I got going. Well, come on, men. But we'll be watching. Quillen, let me see that warrant. You've seen it twice. Yeah. Well, ain't you gonna look at it? I should have looked at it the first time. Huh? Close. I missed reading the date till Hank mentioned it was 12 years ago. What's that got to do with it? 12 years is a long time, Quillen. That warrant's still legal. But it would have been forgotten by now if you hadn't have paid the sheriff and Prescott to go to the trouble to dig around and find it for you. And paid him something more to make you a deputy. What do you say? I hate men like you who go out after other men just for the reward money. You're a professional manhunter, and that's the worst. So? What are you? I'm a lawman. I never collected a reward in my life. Okay, do it your way, but I'm taking this man back. I got word this morning from a friend of mine in Prescott, Quillen. So? He says what I thought about you. You don't often get back with your prisoners. Huh? Too much trouble, I guess. Too much expense. You'd shoot Hank here for trying to escape before you reach the Colorado line. But you'd still collect the reward. You're getting a lot of ideas, Marshal. I got a couple more. Hank. Yeah, what, Marshal? I hear there weren't any witnesses to that murder 12 years ago. That wasn't no murder. Of course, I had to run anyway. Yeah, the sheriff was an enemy of yours. Well, I hear he's dead now. Mm-hmm. There'll be a circuit judge here next week. I think we'll let him decide all this. No, you don't, Marshal. You don't cheat I'm me. sorry, Quillen. You're going to have to earn your money someplace else. Marshal, I'm warning you. This is the only copy of the warrant for Ike Abbott there is, isn't it? You give me that. I'm going to tear it up. I'll kill you if you do. Hank's only worth $500 to you, Quillen. You can find bigger game than him. I said I'll kill you, you tear up that warrant. Even you're not that big a fool, Quillen. Don't do it, Marshal. Somebody has to. No! You killed him, Marshal. I misjudged him, Hank. He was worse than I thought. What? He wouldn't only kill a man for $500. He was willing to die for it himself. Our star... William Conrad. You know, on the frontier, men fought for fool's reasons, like a spilt drink, and they fought for good reasons, like fenced water. But next week, a man comes to Dodge who won't fight for any reason, and still wins his battle. And that was the West. Good night. 
Gunsmoke. Produced and directed by Norman MacDonald, stars William Conrad as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal. Our story was specially written for Gunsmoke by John Meston, with music composed and conducted by Rex Corey. Sound patterns by Tom Hanley and Bill James. Featured in the cast were Lawrence Dobkin, John Daner, and Ken Lynch. Harley Bear is Chester, and Georgia Ellis is Kid. Join us again next week for another specially transcribed story on Gunsmoke. Originally heard on the 27th of May in 1956, that was Manhunter on Gunsmoke. As always, we'll have another episode of Gunsmoke next time. Sometimes it feels like This world's gone crazy Grandpa Take me back to yesterday When the line between right and wrong Didn't seem so hazy Lovers really fall in love to stay Stand beside each other, come what may Promise really something people can't Not just something they would say Families really bow their heads to pray Daddies really never go Progress. But I 
pick up all of our shows and records and all that stuff and haul them back into the vault. That's going to kick things in the head for another week. Well, Chester is looking at the clock on the wall and pointing to it. Hmm. Time sure does fly. I'll tell you, though, it's been our very great pleasure to spend a little time with you today. And we're glad that you stopped by so you could listen to some of these great old-time radio shows. And we could share a few songs and memories together. And we'll be back in two weeks. We'll do it all over again. Chester and I will have a whole new slate of shows lined up, and uh, we hope you can join us then. In the meantime, this is Bob Bro. I'm so glad you stopped by, and I am so glad you met me.
I've sung this song, but I'll sing it again Of the place that I lived on the wild windy plains In the month of April, the county called Gray Here's what all of the people there say Well, it's so long, it's been good to know ya so long It's been good to know ya So long It's been good to know ya This dusty old dust Is a-getting my home And I got to be drifting along The dust storm hit And it hit like thunder It dusted us over And it dusted us under It blocked out the traffic It blocked out the sun And straight for home All the people did run Singing so long It's been good to know ya So long It's been good to know ya So Dusty old dust is getting my home And I got to be drifting along